credit where credit is due. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Look, pastor shared with y'all last week about Vision 2020, about the fact that we are in this building campaign and we are so thankful at the Quita campus for the faithfulness of the saints here at the Broken Arrow campus to join in with us to reach out and to help us to build our new worship center, to build our new preschool, to renovate the existing buildings. As we continue to grow, we've run out of room in a lot of those areas. And so we, we are looking to expand and to grow, not just our building, but, but God's kingdom. And so we want to say thank you for those that have been so diligent and so willing to give of your finances to help us to achieve that, that, that end. And something that I communicate to, to our church all the time, two things that I try to impress upon them as we are in this building campaign is this. First off, never feel guilty for not being able to give more than you can. Just because somebody else can give more than you, never feel guilty for not giving more than you can. We need everybody to, to, to give what, what they can, but never feel guilty for not being able to give more than you can. We want to be in the new worship center. We want to be in the new building come 2020. We want to be worshiping in that building. We want to be reaching out to the community and inviting them to, to come and worship with us there. And so God, uh, God has laid a, upon uh, our pastor's heart really this, this vision for us of each and every one of us giving $20 a week to, to the mission. But never feeling guilty for not being able to give more than you can. But the second thing that I try to communicate to our campus all the time is, yes, you should not feel guilty for not being able to give more than you can, but you should never feel comfortable giving less than you can. You should never become comfortable with giving less than you can. So we want to make sure that God has blessed each and every one of us with a specific ability and a specific means that we can partner with him in the local church of expanding the mission that God has placed upon us as a local church. And we want to be faithful in that because our giving is an act of worship. It requires sacrifice. And so I want to encourage each and every one of you to participate in what it is that God is doing here at the church by giving, giving to missions, giving to our GO budget. By, by giving to the building fund, by giving to the overarching budget so we can carry out the plans that God has laid upon the hearts of the staff here and Pastor Nick so that we can reach as many people as we can with the gospel and we can disciple as many people as we can here at First Baptist BA and Community Baptist Coweta. There's something else that is an act of worship that I want to encourage each and every individual to be involved in and to do, and, and that is the act of worship in, in, in standing up for justice and being an advocate for the defenseless, being a, a voice for the voiceless. Today in churches all across the United States, we are looking at the sanctity of human life. And the value that each life has. That every life was created by God and in the image of God and therefore deserves the, the, the right and the dignity to be loved as a neighbor in the same vein we would love ourselves. But yet we live in a country that literally at the rate that a September 11th happens every day murders and dismembers children in their mother's wombs. And for a large part, the church 
has remained silent. Look, I've been to the March for Life in D.C. I've been to the March for Life here in Tulsa, and I can tell you 98 to 99% of the individuals that participate in that are Catholic. The evangelical church is nowhere to be found. To be pro-life has got to mean more to us than every four years voting for individuals that tell us they're pro-life, but in the end do absolutely nothing when bills and legislations are put in to that end. At one point in time in this country, the Supreme Court said that slavery was okay. And the pro-life movement has got to be more than trying to legislate murder. That would be like the individuals that stood against the tyranny of slavery saying that we want to put an end to slavery by saying you can only own slaves if they're between this age and this age. There has to be a complete uh, uh, abolishing of the sin. And look, I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about a political issue to be solved. I'm talking about a biblical injustice to be eradicated. A woman named Penny Lee once wrote, she's a pro-life activist. She once wrote about a man who approached her after a speech she gave. And this man approached her and was weeping. And he told her the following story that she recounts in her book. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today, in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle from a distance. And then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track, we became disturbed when one Sunday, we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by. We grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, that train whistle would blow. We would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry out to us as they passed our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help these poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time that train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it much anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Their screams tormented us. If some of their screams reached our ears, we just sing a little louder. Now, so many years later, I see it happening all over again in America. May God forgive you as Americans for you have blocked out the screams of millions of your own children. The Holocaust is here. The response is the same as it was in my country. Silence. We look on individuals who were members of God's church in 1940s Germany and we wonder, why didn't you do anything to take a stand against what was happening in your own midst? And one day, history will look back upon us. Our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will look back upon us and they will wonder what it is that you did in the face of the fact that there was a September 11th that happened each and every day and what 
did you do about it? Did you just sing a little louder? We must, as followers of Jesus Christ, understand that every life is precious because every life was created by God in an image of God, and they inherently have a right to life and to be loved like a neighbor in the same vein we would love ourselves, each and every one of them. I want to encourage you to get involved in the fight. Volunteer at a pregnancy resource center. Give to go where we help fund pregnancy resource centers that reach out to vulnerable women and let them know that, 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 that they really do have other options than that. Get involved in uh, uh, adoption and, and foster care and open your home to receive one of these children. Get involved in a special needs ministry like the one breed that we have here. Go to the Baptist village and, and serve with the elderly. Look, I'm not talking about just the preborn. I'm talking about all life and giving dignity and respect to all life. We can do better, church. We must do better, church. I also want to say if there's anybody in here that has ever had an abortion, been a, a participant in an abortion, encouraged an abortion, I want you to understand that, that God is the author of creation, but Jesus Christ is also the author of salvation. And if you will ask for forgiveness, we have a, a merciful and a gracious God who will forgive you. I know this firsthand. When I was 20 years old, I encouraged and I advocated for and I pushed a girlfriend who I had impregnated at that time to get an abortion. Our son or our daughter would be 19 years old. And I advocated and I pushed for her to murder our own child. I can tell you the scars and the wounds that that leaves upon you. And anybody that has gone through that, I'm telling you, they may try to act as if it didn't leave a scar across their heart, but I guarantee you that deep down it did. And I want you to understand at the altar of Jesus Christ, at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for all of us. If you carry that burden, I, I want to encourage you. We have a fantastic ministry that meets every Thursday night called Celebrate Recovery. Whatever baggage you may be carrying, whatever burden you may be carrying, whatever hurt or habit or hang-up that, that you may be dealing with, there's a great ministry that meets every Thursday night at 6 o'clock upstairs in the children's area that we've seen individuals come and find great freedom through the process that God uses of refining those individuals through this ministry. And I'm excited to say that starting this Wednesday, the 24th, we're going to begin the, the youth version of that. For those that are between 6th and 12th grade, there's a place for you to come, a safe place for you to come. If you're dealing with, with different issues, you're dealing with different struggles, hurts and habits and hang-ups that are preventing you from having a closer walk with Christ, from, from experiencing that freedom that is in Christ Jesus, we want to encourage you to come. We want to encourage you to bring your friends that you know are struggling with issues that they feel like they can't talk to their parents about or they can't talk to another adult about. And I want to enlist all of your prayers to be praying for this ministry and to be praying for our Celebrate Recovery ministry and the youth version called The Landing. Now, when Pastor asked me to fill in and preach today, he, he wanted me to pick up where he left off in the book of Ephesians. 
Now, where he was supposed to be was in Ephesians 1.15 today. If you were here last week, you know he got to verse 3. So if you want to go ahead and start opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. Now, I made it through verses 4 through 5, and, and they turned my mic off earlier so we could get the first service out and get y'all in. So we'll, we'll see, okay? We'll see what happens. But we're going to try and get through verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 1. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, there is a woman in this city, in this state, in this country, who has an appointment tomorrow to go to a facility to have their child murdered. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring truth and conviction upon their lives to know that there is another way and that that is a life in their womb. Lord, and I pray that they would choose life and I pray that your church would get off of the sideline and would get in this fight. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would mold us and shape us and fashion us to the image of your son Jesus Christ today more than we were when we walked in. That through your word here today, Heavenly Father, we would be drawn closer to you. Lord, we ask that you would just give us a glimpse of your glory. Just as you did for Moses. Would you just give us a glimpse of your glory today? That would sustain us a lifetime. Lord, we thank you and we give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 1, I'm going to back up to verse 3 because verse 4 picks up in the middle of the sentence. And verse 3 kind of helps explain the rest of the verses. So verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I love preaching through books of the Bible because sometimes when we do topical preaching, we avoid verses like this. We avoid handling topics that may seem like, eh, I don't really know. I see these words about being chosen before the foundation of the world. I see this word predestined. I don't really know about all of these things. And so it can be very easy to skip around this. But when you preach through books of the Bible, you can't run from it. Now, what we see in this text is something that blesses me so much because it shows us the unfailing love of God, it shows us the, the amazing grace of God, and it shows us the miraculous mercy of God Almighty in this passage of Scripture. It shows us that God, as we read throughout the rest of Scripture, in His sovereignty gave man free will to either respond to God or to reject God. And that all have sinned and gone astray because there seems a way right to us, but in the end it leads to death. And because of the rebellious spirit of God's creation, because we reject God and we choose to go our own way, we are separated from a holy God and we remain in our sin until we place our faith in Christ Jesus. But what this passage of Scripture shows us is that God had a plan. Now, we first read about that plan in Genesis 3.15 in what's known as the Proto-Evangelum. 
It's the first time that the gospel is really communicated. In Genesis 3.15, it says that there will be a Savior that will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent at great cost to himself because his heel will be bruised. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the plan did not originate in, Jesus, in Genesis. The plan originated before the foundation of the world, that in the Godhead, the plan that was decided was not that God was going to play a game of duck, duck, damnation. That he was going to single out certain individuals for salvation and certain individuals for damnation. What was decided before the foundation of the world wasn't God going around saying, heaven, heaven, hell, heaven, heaven, hell, heaven, heaven, hell. What was decided before the foundation of the world is the plan would be that Jesus Christ would go to the cross on behalf of all of sinful man and all those who repented and placed their faith in Jesus would be saved. This plan was not an afterthought or last minute addition after Adam sinned. No, in eternity, God marked out his great and glorious plan of salvation. And that plan would be executed by Christ and be fulfilled in Christ. And we can't read our text by skipping over in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. John 10 tells us that Jesus is the door, that he is the gate, and nobody can come and receive saving grace unless they enter in through that door. That there's only one way. That God chooses all those who in faith will repent of their sins and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This passage is not about God predetermining which individuals will be in Christ. This passage of Scripture is about God predetermining what will become of all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, verse 3 says that he's telling us about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. It says to us that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that what? That, 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 we, that we should be saved where others are, 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 are not? No. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, here is the first spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus, that we would be holy and blameless before him. What did he predestine us to? Some to salvation and some to damnation? That's not what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says he predestined us for adoption to himself. God, in this passage, isn't communicating to us who was predestined, but all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are predestined to be holy and blameless, are predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters of God most high, that the spiritual blessings we have is that we'll be redeemed in Christ, that we will be forgiven in Christ, that we will obtain inheritance in Christ, that we will be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in Christ. That's what this passage is showing us. It's showing us those spiritual blessings. Now, especially in our country, we get the word blessing confused with what God means it to be. In our vernacular, in our meaning, when we get the promotion, we say we're blessed. When we get the new bigger house, we say we're blessed. When, when, when we have children, we say we're blessed. When, when we find that significant other, when we find that man or that woman and enter into the union of marriage, we say that we are blessed. When we're healed from cancer or our sickness, we say that we are blessed. But you think about that for a moment and the way you use it. 
So if that's true, are you saying all other Christians that are followers of Jesus Christ, if they don't get the promotion, they're not blessed? If they never own their own house, they're not blessed? If they are never able to have children of their own, they're not blessed? Would you say that if someone remains single and never, never finds that other individual and gets married, that they're not blessed? If, if a Christian is, is not healed of, uh, of their cancer, does that mean that they're not blessed? God says that our spiritual blessings don't come from any of those things. We are blessed because we are in Christ Jesus. And because we are in Christ Jesus, we are holy and blameless. Because we're in Christ Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the God Most High. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we're redeemed. Because we're in Christ Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins. Because we're in Christ Jesus, we have an inheritance. Because we're in Christ Jesus, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And nothing can take that away from you. You may lose your house. You may lose your family, you may lose your job, you may lose your life because of a sickness or an illness, but none of that in and of itself does not mean that you aren't blessed. We're blessed because the grace of God is sufficient. We're blessed because in Christ Jesus we have these spiritual blessings and nothing can separate us from those. Nothing. So how then does one come to be in Christ? I think that's the real question. How then does one come to be in Christ? Well, verse 13 shows us. Verse 13 of Ephesians 1 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's a thing called order salutis. It's Latin for the order of salvation. And what we see all throughout Scripture is what we see in Ephesians 1.13, that the order of salvation is that the gospel is presented... You respond through repentance and faith, and then you're saved. Now, some people that will teach the idea that some people were pre-selected before the foundation of the world, some to salvation, some to damnation, is that you can't believe until you're first saved. That until you're given a new heart and a new spirit, you can't repent. Well, what does Scripture say about that? Ezekiel 18, 30-32 says this, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So the order of salvation is clearly presented here in the text that you repent, you turn away, you rid yourselves of your sin, and then you get a new heart, and then you get a new spirit. And verse 32 is even more emphatically clear. Repent and live. It's not that you got to be made alive so that you can repent. The power of the gospel unto salvation of mankind is that you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. John 5.40 says this, Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The order of salvation, come to me and then have life. We go on and, and, and we read in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.16, But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Again, the order of salvation, believe in him and then you receive eternal life. The gospel is a whosoever gospel. 
It's a whosoever gospel. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, that's everybody in this room, that's everybody that's ever existed, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, a great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, what some people will have you believe is that Jesus is saying, if you thirst, come to me. And when certain people come, he holds them at bay, but then holds them responsible for the fact that they never drank of the living water of Jesus Christ. Come and get it. You got to get it to have eternal life, but you can't come get it. And I'm going to hold you responsible for the fact that you never came and took a drink. John 10, 7 through 9. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Romans 10, 11 through 18, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches, those spiritual blessings, on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the rest of the passage goes on to say, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if nobody goes and preach? Now, I want to ask you a question in all honesty. Listen, in your own head, in your own heart, in your own mind. When is the last time, truly the last time, that you sat down with somebody and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ? Last week? A couple weeks ago, been a month, two months. How long has it been since you truly shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone that you know if Christ were to return in this moment, and that is a reality and a fact that could happen, that they would be separated from God for all of eternity? I think we should sit in the weight of that. I think there should be conviction on those of us who have not shared the gospel with anybody lately. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. He makes his appeal through us. How will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if somebody doesn't go and preach? And how will they preach unless they've been sent? Well, have we been sent? Yes. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. Each and every one of us has been called. And each and every one of us is without excuse. Romans 1.20 says that we cannot stand before a holy God. Look, we're all going to stand in judgment before a holy God. Believers and followers of Jesus Christ will stand before the Bema seat of Christ Jesus. Those that have rejected Jesus Christ, they will stand before the great white throne of judgment. But nobody, nobody that stands before the great white throne of judgment can stand without excuse. Romans 1.20 says that we have no excuse. No one can stand before God and give the excuse, I was born unloved by my creator. John 3.16 tells us that that's a lie. No one can stand before a perfect and a holy God and give the excuse, you never chose me. You prevented me from coming to you. You wouldn't save me. I had no hope. Titus 2.11 deals exactly with that. 
No, the reason why individuals will spend an entire her eternity in, in a very real place called hell is not because God didn't love them enough or God predestined them towards that end, but because they willingly rejected what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. Jesus uses this great illustration in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, 16 through 17, he says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. The parents went to the marketplace, and their kids was acting crazy, so they just had to put them off to the side for a little bit. I think some of the strongest refining fire that God uses in sanctification process is taking toddlers to the market. Anybody took a toddler to the grocery store lately? It helped your prayer life, didn't it? Helped your prayer life. I'm telling you what. Me and my wife, we draw straws. Who's going to go to the store and whether or not they're going to take the kids? Because it is absolutely crazy. Well, look, the same thing happened. They sent the kids away and said, look, I want you to go play. And so one little boy said, look, I got a flute. Let's play a game. Now, there's two main things that kind of happened in communities back in that day. There were two main big events that would happen in the life of a village that day. Weddings and funerals. And so one little boy grabs a flute and he says, hey, let's play wedding. And he starts playing a wedding song. And one little boy doesn't want to play. So I don't want to play that game. That's a stupid game. Okay, you don't want to play that game? Well, let's play the, the only other game we got is let's play funeral then. And little boy says, I don't want to play funeral. That's a dumb game. Okay, well, you don't want to play the happy game? You don't want to play the sad game? What, what, what do we want to do? The truth of the matter is, it, it wasn't the game that was being played. It was the fact they weren't the one holding the flute. They weren't the one in control. I've got a little five-year-old, and maybe parents of, of, of young ones or parents of those that have grown up, you can relate to this. For one of her birthdays, we had been preparing for, for her birthday. I think it was her fourth birthday. We've been preparing for her birthday for a long time. What do you, what do you, want, your, what do you want for your birthday? What's the theme going to be for your birthday? Princesses. Just, print, just Disney princesses. Okay, we can nail that. That's pretty easy. We got that. Day of, morning of, she freaks out. Because she wants Paw Patrol. I want Paw Patrol. I, I, I asked her, I said, does Paw Patrol have a princess in it? Because if not, you ain't getting Paw Patrol. You getting princesses. People start showing up. It didn't go the way she wanted to. We didn't do the presents when she wanted. We did the presents after the cake. She wanted, she wanted the presents before the cake. It didn't go the way she wanted to. So now she's throwing a tantrum because it's not going the way she wants it to. And God is saying that the generation and the creation of this world is exactly the same way, that our lives don't go exactly the way that we want them, that God isn't controlled by us, that he doesn't dance to the melody of the flute that we play. And so therefore, we will never surrender to him because he has called us in his sovereignty to repent and to bow our knee to him and to him alone. But we want the flute. I don't like that game. I don't like the game of complete surrender. I don't like the game that I got to come to you on your terms. I want to hold the flute and I want to control you, God, and you dance to the beat that I create. 
He goes on a little further in that passage of Scripture, and it says that you said John had a demon because he wouldn't eat or drink. And you say that I'm a friend of sinners and a drunkard and a glutton because I came and I, I ate and drank. You said John was too harsh, but you say I'm too easy. And many people in this world will say the same thing about Christianity. You mean all I got to do is place my faith in Jesus? I just got to pray a prayer and walk, walk an eye? I mean, there's nothing more to it. There's got to be more to it than that. That's too easy. That's just too easy. You mean there's not more than one? Jesus is the only way, and I got to surrender everything to him? I got to die to myself? I got to pick up a cross, and I got to follow after him? Ah, that sounds too harsh. Right? The first part sounds too inclusive. Anybody can come and just place their faith in Jesus, and they're saved? Anybody? And the second sounds too exclusive. You mean the only way that I can come to, to, to God is through Jesus Christ? Look, the gospel is exclusively inclusive. It's exclusive in the fact that only through Jesus Christ can you be saved. It's inclusive that all those that do so will. But the world doesn't want to hear that. So which one is it? Is Christianity too hard or is Christianity too easy? The truth of the matter is when you get down to the, to the heart of it, is that individuals don't want to surrender their life to Jesus Christ because they want to be God. And until you surrender to Jesus and know that you cannot save yourself, you will have no peace. You will have no truth. You will have never experienced the love of God Almighty poured out into your heart. And so he talks to us about these spiritual blessings, about when we do come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the first one that he, he leads us to is that we will be holy and blameless before him. One day you will stand before God. And those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he says you're going to be holy and blameless. That word holy really means separated from or different than. Listen to me, church. I find it so strange. I didn't grow up in the church. I find it so strange that the church tries so hard to reach the world by looking like the world. I find that ab I, 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 can't, I can't fathom that maybe because I didn't grow up and I haven't been in church long enough to really adopt that mind frame. Maybe people are just smarter than me. But, but, but for me, when I was in the world, I, I wanted to leave the world because I wanted something different. Why is the church trying to look so much like the world? Why is the church trying to look so much like the very thing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free from? I don't understand it. I can't get it. Maybe somebody can help me. Maybe I just don't understand ecclesiology very well. Maybe somebody can come and, and help me with that. But let me tell you something. The way to reach the lost in the dying world is not to adopt the ways of the lost in the dying world. It's to live as a light within the darkness. It's to be a salt within the decay. It's to show that there's something different in my life now, and that difference is Jesus Christ. Look, if your life doesn't look any different than the world's, and you say you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, I got to say something's wrong, friend. Something's wrong. God's called us to be different. A church is holy because it's different than any other building. A sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system was holy because it was different than any other animal. God is holy because he is different than all of his creation. The Sabbath is holy because it's different from all other days. And Christians are called to be holy because we are different from the lost and the dying world. He says, not only are you going to be holy, but you're going to be blameless. Now, now how can that be? Now, now how can that be? Because I, I did it, right? I'm guilty. 
I'm guilty of those sins. So how can I stand before a perfect and a holy God on the day of judgment and I'm holy and I'm blameless? Well, there's this beautiful doctrine called the double imputation. And imputation, imputation really just talks about the fact that something has been taken out of one account and placed in another account. And the beauty of the cross is that not only was our sin imputed to Jesus Christ and paid for fully on the cross, but his righteousness was imputed to us. So our sin went to Jesus and his righteousness goes to us. It's amazing. Each and every one of us ought to have pure joy from that fact. My sin got placed on Jesus. Jesus paid completely for my sin, and his righteousness comes to me, and so therefore I can stand before a holy God, holy and blameless. Let me give you an illustration. Before I got married, when I was dating my wife, I was broke. Like broke, broke. Like 31 years old, living with my mama broke. Okay? Like when I proposed to her to marry me, I did so over two Sonic cheeseburgers that she bought broke. You know what I'm saying? But something happened when I got married to my wife that was absolutely amazing. One, I gained the most beautiful godly helpmate that any man could ever ask for. But secondly, joint checking account. (laughs) Joint checking account is amazing. It is like this great mystery that I had nothing in, in, in my account, and all of a sudden, two weeks after we got married, there was money in this account. I didn't, she was an educator. I didn't have to wake up early in the morning. I didn't have to go deal with the kids and wipe the snot off the noses. I didn't have to teach the lessons. I didn't have to deal with the parents. I didn't have to grade the papers. I didn't have to do any of that. But yet every two weeks there was money in the account. You didn't have to get spit on. You didn't have to have the flesh of your back ripped off by cat and eye tails. You didn't have to have a crown of thorns put on your head. You didn't have to be mocked and have people punch you in your face. You didn't have to carry a cross beam of a cross out of a city and up a hill. You didn't have to have nails driven in your hands. You didn't have to have a nail driven in your feet. You didn't have to have a spear puncture your side. Jesus Christ did that for you, and he takes in your bankrupt account all of the riches that he has, and he puts them into our account, and you didn't have to do absolutely anything, and that's what makes God's grace so amazing. That's what makes his grace so amazing, that beautiful double imputation. Now, real quickly, the before and after. I I love this, and and man, I paint myself in a corner because they tell me you got to wrap it up at a a certain time. I'm just going to act like I don't see a clock. I'm going to just do this. Okay, so uh, Jesus is just too good. I just can't shut up about Jesus. Come on, somebody. Look, I'll do it. Will somebody give me, will somebody give me five extra minutes? Raise your hand. You give me five min- extra minutes. Look, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Look, y'all just gave me about two hours extra, and I'm going to take all of it, okay? He predestined us for adoption to himself. Man, I love that. Because before Jesus Christ, I was an orphan. I was held in bondage and in darkness 
and chained by my sin. But in Christ Jesus, look, I'm not only forgiven, but I become family. I become a son of the God most high. He adopts us into his forever family. And that ought to cause each and every person to say amen and shout. I mean, that is good news. I'm, I'm, I'm for not only forgiven, I become family. And my father is God almighty. That's beautiful news. You know, in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as father 14 times. And it's always as the nation referring to, not as an individual. But do you know Jesus refers to God as his father six, over 60 times? I can truly see the growth of a new believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. I can see it the most when they come to understand God as their father. When they start to really grasp the fact that God is their father, man, I'm telling you, there's so much growth that happens in a believer's life when they understand God to be their father. Do you know that the Christian word for God is basically father? In no other religion do they refer to God as their father. But in Christianity, God says, I am your father. You are my children. I love you so much so that I sent my only son to die so that you could come into my forever family. Man, that's good news. You see, Ephesians is all about our identity. The first three chapters are really about the person, who we are in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 is all about the practicum. How do you live that out? So many of us are trying to find our identity in something else or in somebody else. And God is saying your identity is found in the fact that I'm your father and you're my child. Rest in that. Live in that. Know that I've called you to nothing less than that, that he is our father. I was in here... I don't know, it's, I think I said like five weeks first service, but I think actually it was, it was longer than that. We don't sleep a whole lot around our house. We got a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and they kind of tag team us. So the one-year-old's like, I got tonight, and he'll keep us up. And then the five-year-old will do the thing where you're in the dead sleep, and then you wake up, and they're just right there in your face like, dear Lord Jesus. You just, life just flashes. So we don't sleep a whole lot, so days kind of run together. I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. It may, it may have been about two months ago. Who knows? All I can tell you is this. I was in this room with my five-year-old daughter. Nobody was in here, at least not that I know. Maybe somebody was up there. I don't know. And I came, and, and, and I brought my daughter to this altar, and I, I prayed over my five-year-old daughter. Actually, we were over here. I prayed over my five-year-old daughter. And we started talking, and she wanted to know about asking Jesus into her heart, and we started talking about that a little bit. And, man, she's our most honorary, but I tell you what, she is also the one that asks the most spiritual questions and is the most loving. And so I said, okay, baby girl, let me explain to you salvation in a way. And I want to explain salvation to all of you the way I explained to her. Because I think there's many times that we get confused with what it looks like to ask for forgiveness of our sins and to be brought into Christ Jesus. So she was down on the floor right there, standing on the floor, and I was standing up here. And I said, baby, our sin separates us. Our sin separates us from a perfect and a holy God. And if you remain in that, 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 that sin, 
you'll be cast away from God forever. But God doesn't desire that. God desires for every person to be saved, and He wants you to be with Him in heaven. So you've got to get from down there to up here. Now, here are the rules. I want you to get from down there up here, but you can't put any of your body on any one of these steps. You can't touch one of these steps. You can't climb on the railing. You can't try to go another route. You've got to come from right there to right here. I said, baby girl, do you think you could jump from there up here? No, daddy, I don't think I can do that. I said, so how are you going to get from there to here then? If this is a picture of you separated from God and your desire is to be with God, how do you get from there to here? She said she was going to build some like wily coyote type contraption or something along these lines. And I'm just thinking, look, your mama ain't going to let you have a saw. You know what I mean? Like we, 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 can't, we can't do that. So she gives that up and she stands there for a second and she's really thinking. And finally a light bulb goes on. She says, Daddy, can you help me? Keep it going. Keep it going. Finally, she said, Daddy, will you help me? I came and I picked her up. All she had to do was hold on to me and I held on to her. Foot didn't touch one stair, wasn't by her works. It was just by the simple act of her asking her daddy to come and to get her. Up the stairs, now she's where I am. So many of you are living your life at the bottom of the stairs, trying to figure out in your own way, in your own wisdom, in your own strength, how you're going to get from down there to up where you know in your heart you need to be. And the answer is just to cry out to your heavenly father and say, Daddy, can you help me? Daddy, will you help me? And God will do just as he's done for everybody that has ever called out to God Almighty for that help. He will come down and he will snatch you out of the miry clay of your sin. And he will put your feet on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And you will never be moved from that because we are assured that the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus are yes and amen in him. And nothing can separate us from his love. Where are you living your life today? The only way to be up with God, it's by repenting of your sins, acknowledging that you need help, and crying out to Him. Have you done that? Or are you trying to climb the steps yourself? Are you trying to build some contraption to get to God by your own wisdom and your own strength, by your self-righteous good deeds? And I want you to understand none of that can help you obtain the salvation you so desperately look for. Will you bow your heads and your hearts with me? I want to extend an invitation to all those that would say, I'm living my life at the bottom of those stairs, but I desire to be saved by God in this moment. If that's you, if that's your desire, you know you are not saved. Look, church attendance can't save you. Your righteous good deeds can't save you. Being related to some Christian can't save you. It's sheer repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And if your desire is to be saved this day, this very minute, this very second, I want you to know God stands ready to do that. Would you just raise your hand if that's you in this place today? Would you just raise it up high for me to see? This is an act of extending to take hold of the promises of God extended to you in Christ Jesus. Would you just raise your hand? I'm down at the bottom of the steps. I'm crying out to my heavenly Father to save me. <laughs>